Welcome back to Real Voices of Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm here with the stars of our show, Mark Wiley and Will George. It's a day at the yard, common sense pitching with Wiley and Will. We've got a great guest today. Had a wonderful conversation with him off air yesterday, and we had some dialogue that uh, tells me we're going to have a phenomenal show today. But before we start and, and we introduce our guest, I want to address our audience. I want to thank the 14,000, almost 400 subscribers to date uh, for your support. Continue to download, listen, like, subscribe to our podcast. It allows us to continue to give you great content every week with shows like this and great guests like we have today. Continue to stream us on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher, or whatever your fam- favorite streaming device is. And please engage us on social media. Twitter and Instagram, but specifically on Facebook. Uh, you guys have pulled me out of my cave and got me on Facebook, and I'll respond to one guest question every morning, and I'll respond to everybody afterwards. We have three shows today we're recording, so our question list was through the roof. We had over 700 questions this morning, so I've got my work cut out for me in between shows today, but was able to get the one question out. Uh, guys, welcome back to your show, and uh, Mark, with that, why don't you introduce our guest today? Well, we're really pleased to have Jax. He's a longtime scout with unbelievable credentials. Um, you know, he started out in high school. He went to to uh, Bay High School in Bay Village, Ohio, which I know well because I lived not too far from there when I was coaching with the Indians. And uh, he got drafted by the Indians that year but didn't sign. Went to Ohio University uh, where he eventually signed with the Cub. Uh, played in the minor leagues with the Cubs before getting into the scouting business. In 1977 to 80, he was a Yankees area scout. 81, he went back and was an assistant coach at Old Dominion in college. Then went to, became from 82 to 91, uh, he was with the Detroit Tigers, first as an area scout, then as an East Coast cross-checker, and eventually became the scouting director of the Detroit Tigers. In 1992 to 2001, he was a national cross-checker for the Marlins and a pro scout in uh, profession, in, uh, in major league scouting. In 2002 to 2020, he was a special assistant to the general manager of the Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, you have been an uh, unbelievable uh, scout with the people you picked up. I mean, many people always hear the names like Don Mattingly and Travis Fryman, Carl, Carl Willis, Doug Strange, Milt Kyler, uh, Kyler. A lot of guys that you signed in the major leagues, they could go on and on and on. Uh, people don't know the guy behind that. And we're so happy to have you on today so we can talk about some of the things you look for in a player with your vast scouting background, you know, I'm sure our listeners would love to find out some of your inside information. Thank you. Happy to be here. You're welcome. Oh, I also forgot. He was elected to the Professional Baseball Scouts Hall of Fame in 2010. Um, Jax, you know, because you had so much background early and, uh, and becoming the scouting director of Detroit with amateurs, um, you know, what are what are some of the things you look for in a player or pitcher uh, that that tend to spark your interest and, and make them separate from others? Well, especially and as you as you ask the question, Mark, you, you included both position players and pitchers. And there's no difference in, in the level of athleticism that is 
required to you know take you to whatever that next level is you know there are players that players and pitchers that have tools a tool a fastball a breaking ball something that 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 allows them to have some success at the level that they're at but in order to uh, keep up with the game as it speeds up uh, the, the the level of the athlete is what ultimately I think makes a difference. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's, you know, it, it's amazing that, uh, you know, when you see somebody like the Otani kid, um, you know, somebody that special, but you know, you know, the more players that play this game, you know, more special things happen. You know, you always seen you, we always say we've seen everything, but, but I've never seen anything like that kid other than maybe comparing it to somebody that was on the little league all-star team that was the best pitcher and best hitter. That doesn't usually happen in the major leagues. No, he's clearly a unicorn. And there's an outlier that's the, the game has probably never seen before. Babe Ruth did some of those kind of things, I suppose, but I, I, I'd, I'd be hard pressed to think of anybody that would challenge the level of, of excellence that this kid able is able to show both as a position player and 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 as a hitter uh, and run i mean shoot what is this kid not able to do yeah it's 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 amazing that you know i i thought they put it really well he runs as fast as the fastest runner he hits with as much power as the most powerful hitter and he throws the ball as good as the best pitcher i mean that's yeah. ridiculous yeah, but you know the the bottom line. This, as I said, I I, I do think that being an athlete uh, allows you to be able to use some of those tools or those those gifts that you have. And you guys think back, uh, Mark, you and Will and Dave. You guys have all seen good players, but if there's one common denominator, I I, I would I I would be I would be surprised if athleticism does not enter into it. I when I went to how you I had you know, I'd played against some older guys as a high school kid and that had been in the major or in the minor leagues and the in the Sandlot leagues I was playing against these guys. But anyway, when I went to OU, Mark Mike Schmidt was a um, senior on the OU team when I was a freshman. And man, I, I had never seen anybody that face-to-face, person-to-person on the same field that had that kind of ability. And then I watched this guy play basketball. I watched this guy throw a football. I mean, whew. I mean, that that was a that was an eye-opener to me. Yet at that age, at whatever, 18 years old, I said, man, this guy's a different athlete. Yeah. We chat about that on the show every episode, and we're all proponents to it. And I, I kind of throw, throw it up to you. Are you a proponent of the multi-sport athlete as a young? Very much so. Yeah, yeah. I I think uh, actually, I I I did listen a little bit to Murray's. uh, Dave, you and I were talking about this a little bit ago. I was listening a little bit to the the session you had with Murray Cook, who, as as I told you, Dave, and I'll I'll say to all your listeners, is one of my my fondest mentors that I've had, and, and and in a whole lot of ways. But Murray did mention also that the concept of of multi-sport participation, and it it uh, not only you know that doesn't pigeonhole you into the one sport, but it allows you to develop your your 
body movements and awareness in different ways. And the, the other side of that that I remember feeling as though it was important, I, as an area scout, I would attempt to go and see the, uh, you know, the prospects that were upcoming in the draft. I would try to get to see them play basketball in the, summer, in the wintertime felt basketball was a good sport to just to see them move around and see how quick, how, you know, change of direction, body control, uh, and, and expose them in a different sport that may not have been their best sport, but see how they react to different situations. Do, do they still compete when, when they're not able to, to, uh, have the same skill level against as some of their opponents may, may that would translate in my mind to baseball. Um, so participating in multiple, that's a long answer, Dave, sorry. Right participating in multiple sports, I think is, is something really good for the whole development of the player, not just their development in a particular sport. But it lends itself to the point you made also where you look for athleticism and doing multiple sports enhances your abilities as an athlete. And that's the first thing you said you looked at. So I think that's a great answer. And then I know Will wants to jump in. I got one more follow-up. You mentioned something that I think is really important to young athletes that are afraid to do that secondary sport or that third sport, going back to the beginner mind, really. So they're going to be naturally better at one thing as opposed to the other. And you mentioned as a scout, you like to see how they respond to that other sport that may not come as naturally. Yeah. Why is that important to you? Well given a challenge that um, you, you know you're going to have in, if, if, let's say you do go on to play in professional baseball, you're going to have challenges and you're not going to be able to, uh, well, when you do have that challenge, how do you respond? Okay. It, it, you can think back to those years when you were playing high school basketball and you were overmatched. You were overmatched by the guy charging or challenging you who was, who was, defending you that day but were you able to persevere through that time and it's it's yeah it's it's about life too right i mean you know we, we all have challenges in life and you know there's a there's a time when you can just kind of cave in and give up or or do you want to suck it up and get after it and baseball is certainly unforgiving if you can't handle that of all the sports. So that, those are great answers, Jack. But Will, go ahead. You want to, You had something. Yeah. Well, you know, to add on to that, you know, baseball is built around failure. And when you're playing your secondary sport and you're failing, what do you do? And you know, I was lucky to be hired by the Marlins after coaching with all the good people I did in Baltimore and Cleveland, and then be around people like Jacks who mentored me along with Mary Cook and Gary Hughes and people like that about going and watching guys. And I'll never forget a guy we ended up taking, Blaine Neal, was a very you know good high school basketball player, but he was playing against the number one team in the country, Camden High School in New Jersey. And he had bronchitis and I think he scored 36 points. He was six foot five. He ended up bringing the ball up the court because they couldn't get it up the court. He had like 16 rebounds and played the game of his life in this game. And then you go, my gosh, well, he's throwing 95, 96. He's got a competitive spirit. This guy's going to pitch in the big leagues. And he ended up doing that for, you know, five or six years. But those were the things 
that I was lucky enough to work with people who looked for those things and mentored me to continue to look for those things as I do it now. I look for guys who move athletically on a baseball field, whether they're pitchers or position players. Um, you know, Mark, I'll let you jump in, but I did want to ask Jax about, and I think he was our national cross checker about a pitcher that you spent a lot of time with, uh, Josh Beckett. Uh, so, you know, maybe let Jax, you know, what, 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 what we saw when we took him number two in the draft that year. Yeah, I, I did see Josh multiple times and it was, it was a year in which, uh, we were picking second in the in the draft, so you really didn't have to uh, have that long of a list of players who you were uh, considering, knowing that there was only going to be one gone before you pick. And in that year, there was Josh Hamilton and Josh Beckett were what really, in our mind anyway, were the two that were a class above everybody else. And so we spent a lot of time on both of them. And so, and, and whenever in, in Josh was in, Josh Beckett, that is, was in uh, Dallas area, right? Dallas, no, Houston, right? Houston. And, uh, you know, Texas is always, there's always a lot of players there to see. So I spent, I was able to spend a lot of time there. And I would go and see him, not just pitch, but uh, Bob Laurie and I, we would go over and watch him play the outfield that day. And uh, days that he was, you know, when we could squeeze in a few at bats before going to a night game or something like that. So, and that was, uh, you know, Josh was easy to, to like, I mean, think about, I mean, he was a 19 year old, pretty good sized kid at that time, pretty well developed and had elite stuff. And beyond that, he was one, he was a cocky kid. And you saw that happen when he's, you know, when he's, uh, uh, you know, playing another position. I mean, he, he felt like he was the best hitter on the field, and he, and he might have been, too. That's funny that, you know, he projected that at a young age because I had him in the big leagues, and and he was probably the most confident guy I ever had. Yeah. And one, one day he told me, we were talking about high school drafts or something, and he says, Mark, I was the cockiest guy you've ever seen in high school. I said, Really? And he goes, that, I said, that doesn't really surprise me. And he says, Mark, I had a ch- jacket made. He had a jacket made that said like he was the greatest or something. And he used to wear it around. He told, I go, you didn't do that. He goes, yeah, I did. I did. And I, and I, I just laugh because, you know, I've told this story on other, other podcasts. And this kind of comes right from what you're talking about. He showed it in high school, the kind of confidence, even to a point of cockiness. And when I had him in the big leagues, he he respected other players, but he never thought anybody was as good as him. He never thought there was a hitter that was as good as him. It was unbelievable. And I told him when he got traded from the Marlins to Boston, I said, of all the guys I've had, and I've had some really good pitchers, I said, you're the one guy I know that can perform in New York or Boston. And he said, yeah. why do you say that? And I said, because – you don't think anybody's better than you and you like to show everybody how good you are. And mm-hmm. I said, and that'll play right into those towns because you're not afraid of the fans because you already know you're better than the hitters. No so, doubt. You know, he, he's an amazing guy. And, and Mark, he, as, as you saw him as a young youngster too, but even, even as a, 
high school kid. He was that good. I mean, he, I mean, it, the stuff was elite and he would throw the ball pretty close to where he wanted to and compete his back end off too. Boy, I'll tell you, he, he was, he was really good. Yeah. He, he had, you talk about body control on the mound, you know, he, he, he was really, he had a, a nice rhythm and timing to his delivery and it allowed him to stay balanced and command the ball really well, especially with a guy with that kind of stuff. Yeah. Arm really worked, right, Mark? I mean, it was like. Really worked. And he had value to a changeup, which a lot of elite pitchers that have that kind of fastball don't have as much value to the changeup as he did. And he could throw it any time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he was funny. I, I, I would tell you, he, when I had it with the Marlins, the National League was a little different because I'd spent a lot of time in the American League. And American League power hitters, they covered away really well. And they could hit the ball out of right center. But in the National League, they still had a lot of guys that pulled the ball. And when he'd get behind, he would just throw a fastball away on the corner and take a fly out to center or a fly out the other way. But he wasn't so concerned with having it down. He just got it there. And one day he was doing a side for me, and I said, Josh, I said, see those fastballs you're throwing that are like thigh high out of way? He goes, yeah, good command, huh? And I go, yeah, on the corner. But I said, in the American League, those guys, you know, Gonzalez, Manny Ramirez, guys like that, A-Rod, they're going to hit that ball out of right center. He goes, no way. And I go, oh, yeah, they can hit 97 if it's thigh high out away from them because they're looking for the ball out away from them. And he said, really? And I said, so then he gets traded to Boston. And I watched him the first year he gave up a ton of home runs. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I know it was exactly because of that reason, because he'd, he'd always been able to get away with it. Well, the next year he just lowered his sights and he started getting them down and away. And then he was a 20-game winner and a World Series champion anyway. But but he gave up way less home runs. So I, I think he also had the ability to make adjustments. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Jax, I wanted to ask you a little bit about Mattingly. You know, um, he was a high school pick, right? Yes. And like 17th round, is that correct? Um, I think it was like 18th, but it wasn't. It was not a high pick, correct? Like in, in, in our world today where everything is showcasing, these guys are so, so seen in these short showcase looks. Um Going in and seeing him, you know, what were your thoughts? You know, how did you run across him? Was it in Legion? Was it in covering another high school player where you ran across him as a as an underclassman? You know, maybe go a little bit into that and you know, just, you know, what you know, what you saw and you know, we all know what it ended up becoming, which was probably one of the better hitters for ten years or so in the American League. Yeah, well, it, it, as as you well know, it, the, the the environment is a whole lot different back then. This was in shoot, I don't know. You got the year there? What year was that? Uh, Yeah, right. Seventy eight. My second year in scouting. So no, I did not see him um, prior to the uh, high school season. Uh, the the method. I had like a decent size area. It wasn't enormous like I had some of the years later when with the with the Tigers. 
but I was living in Dayton. He was in Evansville. It mm-hmm. wasn't a, it wasn't an easy spot for me to get to. Um, but I, I had a, the my leads, my it, the ones that I didn't corral by myself from having seen Legion the summer before or something like that came from the Major League Scouting Bureau. Right. And uh, Joe Moreland was the Major League Scouting Bureau uh, representative that covered the, the lower half, the, the southern half of Indiana, along with southern half of Ohio. So that included all my that was part of my area. So I got all of Joe's reports and he had a uh, you know, a favorable report on Don Mattingly. It wasn't a glowing report, but I think it was like about a 46, 47 on that old scale. You guys know what that is. Um, yep, yep. So, you know, I think, I think all the scouts saw him, but this was in an era when the Cincinnati Reds and the Pittsburgh Pirates were having a pretty good run. And much of their scouting philosophy was based on guys who could run and throw. And uh, that kind of uh, set the standard for what many people were looking at at that time. And this, I'm a second year scout, guys. I mean, I didn't I didn't know squat what I was doing, to be honest. With you. I really had to rely on a whole lot of the veterans to take me under their wing. So I was just learning. And I, I you know, I, I thought I had it pretty well figured out, like we all do at that age. I'm, what are 26, seven years old? I mean, I'd be, yeah, I, I got this. I got this down. Just, just, I got it. Sure. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I go in and see him and, you know, just because he, the the uh, the interest level wasn't real high, I think, because of Donnie did not run fast. Ever. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, but he didn't have a good arm and he didn't have any power. I mean, it, it wasn't something as a high school kid. It's something that, you know, it, it's not something that you can really grab onto there. Um, but yeah, you do have to watch him. And, um, now (laughs) the fact that he was a lower draft, I think was also, I know was also benefited by the fact that he was not fully committed to, uh, not going to play basketball. Right. I think it was Indiana state where he was going to go. And, uh, and so that scared some clubs off, I believe, because there would be some, you know, some money involved to try to buy him out of that basketball scholarship. And because he didn't have those elite tools, that kind of slid his draft market down, probably. Um, I was fortunate to be with the Yankees and the Yankees would give you some money to sign a guy that, that at that time there were no limits on what you could give people relative to the round. And, uh, you know, ultimately George Steinbrenner gives you the money to do it with, but, but he always has a little caveat at the end. He said, you better be right or it's your ass. I mean, that's kind of how it worked. Right. uh, So anyway, so no, I didn't see him early, but I did see him during the season. And then the the fortunate thing for me in, in order to be able to sell him further to the Yankees was that, um, in those years, I'm not sure if they're still doing it, but the Indiana State High School Baseball Tournament would carry deep into the spring, into the summer, even after after graduation right. and beyond the draft. So we had drafted them, and then I was able to see them even more after the draft, having them under control because they would play like every Saturday they, they'd play. 
And, you know, if they, if they win, they play the next Saturday. If they lose, then I could stay there and try to sign them. But I, I kept going over there. And every time I went over, he still hadn't swung and missed. Right. And, right. I mean, you know, after a couple of times seeing him, you think this is during the regular, you know, season of, of the high school season. I, I kept thinking like, man, this guy never swings through a ball. Right. Now, does he hit it long and far? No. Does he pull the ball? Rarely. You know, there are things that, you know, there are little signs that like eh, makes you wonder, but he always squared it up and ha- had a great instinct for the flow of the play. And, you know, just he, he had a lot of ability that um, was something that centered around his ability to his hand-eye coordination and, and his ability to put the fat part of the bat on the ball. Yeah. And again, you know, another guy who was a good basketball player, you know. Yeah, so, I did not see him play basketball, but watching, again, being an athlete, I mean, he had, I, I saw him pitch. Uh, he pitched a fair amount um, and, and would compete, control his body. Donnie had great lower body. Um, just, this is a bit off subject, but as we were talking about, athletes one of my mentors uh, uh, my primary mentor probably in amateur scouting was a guy by the name of Tony Lucadello that he would he he would literally while kids were taking infield and legion tournaments he would hold up his scouting card like kind of like in front of his face and then you know eventually I'd ask him about it and he said yeah well I, I only watch the lower body I don't I don't watch the other stuff I just, I just want to see what, how his feet are moving and his balance, what his balance is like. And that's what Donnie was really good at. Well, I once heard somebody say baseball and most sports are built from the ground up. You know, it is built from the lower half and the athleticism down there. And that's why the other sports are so important to play. Because the more you play, the better your mm-hmm. strength and balance and explosive, explosiveness becomes on your lower half. I, totally. I wrote that down. I, I think the lower half is that's a great point because even think about basketball. We're talking basketball. Guys work hours and hours on their dribbling, and even the greatest players in a game only have the ball in their hand ten percent of the time, but they're on their feet the entire game. And I think that's a testament to all scouting for all sports. I hope hope those people are listening. Hey, with uh, with with Mattingly now, would would a guy like Mattingly be coveted as a prospect in today's scouting world? Um, I sure hope so. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. But, but as I, I would say, yes, he would be because he was that good in terms of, of being able to center the ball up, but would it, would it, the way he was as a high school kid probably would have not put him in the category of being a first or second round draft pick. Yeah. You know, just one quick thing. You had mentioned the Major League Scouting Bureau, and you know you had a you had a guy that you leaned on. And uh, for me, it was uh, living in the Northeast and New England. I had two Hall of Fame scouts, Ralph DeLula and Lenny Marullo, uh, who I'm sure you know, Jax, and yeah. how beneficial those guys were at identifying so many so many players and. It was such a good system that Major League Baseball had in place, and it's sad that they that they stopped funding that because I think it would have uh, allowed kids to stop 
or not have to do showcases and continue to just play baseball because the Bureau gave us that, you know, because we all had to go off and do pro scouting as well in the summertime, but they were digging deep into amateur stuff all summer long and identifying the Don Mattingly's or for me, Matt Morris out of, out of high school who Ralph DeLula had in and nobody, nobody really drafted him. And, you know, <laughs> three years later, he's a first round pick and pitches, you know, 12 or 15 years in the big leagues. But that, that's how good those guys were projecting who, who we needed to go see and who we're going to end up playing in the big leagues at some point. Yeah, no doubt. As there were, there were periods, probably more when I was an area scout with the Tigers where I had like a ginormous area and I had to rely on those guys to give me um, basically my follow list and figure out where, where to go. And, and, And they were helpful, not just in giving me the name, but, serving as you know i this is back when we used to have telephones that were attached to a wire and you could call somebody i spent a lot of time calling those guys saying hey i've got to i've got to make a choice here which guy do you think is more important for me to see that's that's uh, you you could rely on those people without a doubt they were tremendous yeah i like the discussions during during the uh the draft in the draft room when Players' names come up like Mattingly, uh, Jim Tomey. Jim Tomey's another one of those guys you talk about. He played basketball in high school. I didn't even realize that he was a basketball player in high school. And then I, then I heard from uh, Bobby Knight said, "Oh yeah, I knew who he was in high school as a basketball player." I mean, if Bobby Knight knows him. He had to be pretty good. I played with Jimmy Mark when we were in Canton. We got rained out or two days in a row or snowed out early in the year. Oh my gosh, was he good? Holy crap! You know, I mean, his, and his legs were so strong. I know. You know, like he was didn't have the quickest feet in the world. He caught everything. He had soft hands. Yeah. He had unbelievable hand-eye coordination. Then, of course, that power. Like Charlie Manuel just said that you know this guy is the most powerful guy I've ever had. Yep. Yeah. And when he was with you, I remember seeing you there in in Akron, Canton. Yeah. Was then Will and and he was still a third baseman then and moved around yeah. okay, yeah yeah I remember when I came over to the Marlins David asked me if I thought he could stay at third I said well I said I it's not going to be good range but he's going to catch everything and he still reacted to the ball off the bat well too yeah mm-hmm. oh yeah he did he he it was just the range was was probably kept him from being elite. Yeah, but we we were able to have better third basemen and him be able to move him to first base, which was really good because you still took advantage of his hands. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What were some of the counters when you when you were in that room, Jack's trying to battle for Mattingly? What were some of the, outside of him maybe being a basketball player? Was there any uh, opposition to him? Yeah, nobody else had seen him <laughs> back in those days. Back in those days, uh, you know, the the area scout pretty much had the hammer, and and uh, that changed over time as as the concept of cross checking became. Huh, I mean, it kind of got out of hand in my mind, but um, the uh, there was, you know, we just had a bunch of guys sitting around a table trying to sell your players, and you know, I, I was I was a second year scout. So the pushback was, 
what the hell does this guy know? Right. I mean, I'm more sorry. I knew than him, huh? Yeah. Yeah, really. I mean, uh, and, but, but again, the, uh, the, in the draft room, it was, yeah. Okay. Well, we'll draft this guy. It's when you're taking a guy in the 18th round, it wasn't like you had, it was like a real battle. Yeah. The battle was getting the money to sign them. And, right. and I was, and I was able to do that by supplementing the, uh, the information that I had prior to the draft with the information that I was able to, to corral after the draft while he was in that, that tournament. And I kept calling back to Bill Burgess at the time was the functioning scouting director and, and continuing to plead my case. Yeah. With, um, and you mentioned the, the two different factions of scouting and I think it may have been Mark that's, or you may have said it too. You guys did amateur scouting, but then you went right into professional scouting back then. Could you tell, could you share the difference between those to our audience? Uh, yes. So the amateur scouting is is um, preparing for the June draft, and you basically spend your entire year doing that. Not just in the spring season, but you're watching the kids play in their in their summer. Back when I was doing it, it was Legion Connie Mac tournaments. Uh, you'd you'd have you'd start to develop what we would call your follow list, the players who you're going to follow the following spring, and uh, then you prepare all spring and then you get together prior to the June draft, early in June at the time it, it was, at least back in those days. I know it's later now, but you then you get together in a room and, uh, uh, you know, you know, put a draft list together and then you start selecting off of that draft list. As the other players get plucked off, you go to your next guy, essentially. Um, that's the process of the, the amateur scouting department the professional scouting department is is again and, and back and not, let me just kind of hesitate here and say that many times if you were scouting amateurs in the uh, up to the draft then you were at assignments to scout professional teams in the winter just filing report excuse me through the summer um through the summer season you, you would do that um professional scouting is you're you're basically whether you're scouting the major leagues or the rookie leagues, you're spending your your year uh, with a with a particular assignment of maybe you might have a league or a division or an organization to cover, um, and and then you just stay with that that assignment the entire spring summer, and then in the fall you you could be going to the fall league or the Puerto Rican or the Dominican league to uh, continue to follow up on players to prepare for trades. That's what that professional scouting department does. You're always preparing for a trade. You don't know when it's going to happen. It might be at the July trading deadline. It might be at the winter meetings, or it might just be any time this guy gets released or designated for assignment. Yeah. And you, I love uh, the guests that Mark and Will bring on because, and, and all of our guys do this, but they send this, you guys have a sense of reverence for those that helped you, uh, move along in the business. I mentioned a guy to you yesterday that you helped along. In fact, you said you you, you hired him. It was his first job, Stan Meek. Stan's going to be on one of our other shows today. And uh, talk a little bit about what, what made Stan Meek a good candidate to hire for scouting. <laughs> yeah, it was, and, and uh, Stan will remember this, this, this very day as well. Uh, Stan was the, I'm pretty sure it was a pitching coach 
at University of Oklahoma. Um, might even have been an acting head coach for a while. I, I can't say I remember that exactly. He was, star, he was a star pitcher there first. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, shame on me, Dave, for not remembering it specifically, but Jerry Walker was working with the Detroit Tigers at that time. Uh, Jerry actually was with the Yankees when I started. So Jerry was a friend. I had a ton of respect for Jerry. And I was the scouting director of the t Tigers at the time and looking for a scout in that, that uh, Oklahoma, Texas, Midwest area. Asked Jerry for a recommendation. He says, yeah, I, I, Stan Meek's out of a job in, in Oklahoma. Um, I would highly recommend him. So um, I was uh, starting to, you know, I had a number of people who I had talked to. I don't remember how many, but there were, there were a few that I had already talked to. Uh, and Stan came into Detroit to uh, meet me. We had a had a um, little interview there, and basically the interview was just he and I talking baseball, right? And uh, asking about a little bit his his thinking and his theories. And uh, <laughs> I said to him at, at the end of the the session, I says, you know, um. I'd like to offer you the job right here and now. I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to talk to anybody else. Is that something that, that if you, you were expecting or not? And he says, no, oh, I wasn't expecting it. I need to go home and talk to Gina, my wife, and find out if this is something that, that I'd truly be able to manage from a personal standpoint. And I said, fine, take the time you need, but uh, I'd, I'd rather you not leave this office without telling me you'd be very much interested in doing this. So um, it, it's just, it was just one of those things where, you know, whether it, whether you whether you meet somebody in your in your neighborhood or you meet them uh, just on the golf course or you, you you meet them in in your profession, sometimes things you just connect. And uh, yeah, Stan was Stan uh, remains a good friend, and uh, he he was he was a real good one. Yeah, we're trying was, to get him on this show here. He's been on and Mark and Will. This is for you to take up with Joe Frazero. He's been on Joe, so it's going to be the third time. Um, no, Joe, Joe's got to quit stealing. Yeah, Man, stealing he, is, he has got to be an unbelievable guest. Stan's one of the most personable, comfortable people to be around that I've ever been in baseball with. Yeah, that's that's a good word. That's a good description of his personality. He's comfortable, comfortable with himself. You know. You know, I was going to say, you know, can you give us a little breakdown on what what a cross checker's responsibilities are and how they're chosen? Um, well, first of all, how they're chosen, they're, they're, it's a job that's given to uh, <laughs> back in my time. It was it was somebody who had already had experience in doing the area scout job. I'm not sure that that's always the case, but it, it would stand to reason that it should continue to be, you know, you're not going to really, um, you know, you, you want to have some experience. You, you want to have some dirt in your spikes, so to speak. So that's to, to answer the question of how they're chosen. Um, but their responsibility and in, in the, in it, it's the way it started, I think as much as anything, and that would have been probably in the, mid to late 70s it, it, the the concept was we want to have let's let's say for instance we've got 10 areas across the country so that's 10 area scouts and they've got a list okay we would like to have a cross checker or two kind of 
kind of compare the list of the guy in New Jersey to the guy in Texas and look at their top guys and say, okay, well, this is kind of where they would rank comparatively speaking in my mind. And that person, that cross checker would go in and see, you know, a handful of the, of the players from each list, usually from the top down. Um, that's, I think, as much as anything, how conceptually it started. But over time, we, we started hiring more and more cross-checkers, and that created more and more looks and in, in, in there that offered more and more data on one-look views. That, to me, is where the, the system began to fail. The, the concept of a cross-checker having one look at a player and, and having some, some clout, if you will, as to where to place this, that, that particular player on your team's ultimate draft board versus the, the area scout who has seen this kid time and again and knows this player knows more than what can be seen by the eye in a one-time game. As a cross-checker, you got to be lucky to, to have the game present itself to the player in order for him to show what he can and cannot do. Sometimes you just don't, you know, kids don't get thrown. The good players get pitched around, right? So what do you do? Um, so that, I don't know, I hope that sort of answers your you know, question. Jax, Jax, I was talking to Jack Gillis about this yesterday, and, you know, Jack's another guy who's been in the game for 40-plus years, a really good scout. And, you know, we were talking about how when we first started, the game, the scouting game amateur worked from the ground up. And mm-hmm. we percolated the names to the cross-checkers and the scouting directors because we had seen them play a lot of baseball. Mm-hmm. Now you have someone that goes to – a as Jack calls them, uh, an executive, an executive showcase, and they throw one inning, and all of a sudden they're at the top of the board yeah. because they threw ninety-seven miles per hour, as opposed to someone who's seen a kid go out and throw three complete games and against teams that he was competing for a league championship or whatever. And, and, and I think we make a lot of mistakes because of showcase looks instead of real baseball looks. No, I think that's a really good point. Uh, you know, years ago, I remember when Dan O'Dowd was the general manager of the Rockies, and I was a special assistant to baseball operations, and Bill Schmidt was the scouting director. And I don't remember whose idea it was, but we had two guys in two parts of the country. We had a – I think it was a pitcher – maybe in um, in Florida and then another one in California, and they were way up the draft board and they were very comparable. And the scout in Florida was really sold on his guy, as was the guy in California. And uh, I think Dan and Smitty, they came up with the idea. They said, you know what we're going to do? Because these guys are such high-priority players. We're going to fly the scout from Florida out to California and the guy from California to Florida to watch this guy pitch. And then these guys live with the guys, so they had a little better comparison than anybody else would have. And I thought that was a really good way to do it because I can remember that the guy at Florida goes, no, nah, my guy's not as good as that guy. 
and he was sold that he was like the number one pick. And he just, after seeing the other guy, he realized that when he could put his eyes on him and compare him, you know, he didn't match up, which I thought was really a good technique. I know it takes time because you got to take your area guy that's in the middle of all his, his scouting and send him out there. But I always thought that was kind of a cool idea if you had a high priority player. Or kind no, of Gary, that collaboration. Or, I'm sorry, well, I cut you off. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say Gary Hughes had me do that. There was a kid down in Virginia and Cleveland ended up taking him, Mark. But uh, when I was with the Marlins, who uh, I really liked the left-handed pitcher from New Jersey that I that we liked, but they wanted me to make sure that I went and uh, went and saw this guy. And I went and saw the kid from uh, Virginia, and he was better. And that's where you need to be truly honest. You know, one of the uh, – Jackson and I work for Gary Hughes, and one of the really good things Gary did was he was able to read our gut feel players, the guys that we truly wanted on your list. You know, you see so many guys during the season, and as we neared the draft, you know, you would have that final call where he wanted your gut feel guy. Who's the guy you're going to bang a table for? Who's the guy that's going to go help us win in the big leagues? And those are so many things that I think are non-existent anymore because the area guy's voice is not being heard as much as just the cross-checkers. Well, on on that, well, I, I want to just follow up with Gary. And, and uh, uh, Gary's Gary was an area scout with me with the Yankees way back in the day, and he, he worked as an area scout. So he'd been there, done that. And he would refer to um, that situation where a the area scout has 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 to continue to have some clout, and if if the cross checker was pushing a player, but the area scout maybe didn't like him to that level, Gary would say, "Nope, you have no local backing," and yeah, you get yeah. chances of cross checker trying to push the guy ahead. No, he. Uh... And he used to narrow our list down, you know, because there were some CYA guys who the Bureau had in high that he would go, do you really like this guy, Will? Because I'm reading your report. And I go, no. And, well, that's good. Now he's off the board. Your board's not clogged up with players you don't want. Yep. Um, You know, there was a couple times he said, you sure as hell better be right. When somebody went in the third round, and I uh, luckily for me, I was. But, um, you know, but that's what a good scouting director does. He knows his people, the communication, the level of honesty that goes on there allows you to get the best player. Well, you know, in today's world, in the draft, you know, you have analytics people there that have analyzed all these players, particularly the top players, um, you know, through everything, whether they're a pitcher or a hitter, uh, they have all these numbers. Then you got video. and you know, I like when you bring in all the amateur scouts into into the draft. And when you go from like 10 down, you argue about between players. I've got a pitcher. Well, so do I. This is where I got him. You have him in the same place. Let's take a look at him. Let's look at the analytics. Let's look at the video. Let's determine which what's our picking order. I think there – but sometimes it gets clogged up because there's so much information and you have to be, disseminate, you know, what's important and what isn't. Right. Hey, uh, Jax, uh, 
I wanted to uh, try to refresh your memory. I think you and Murray came, and earlier on in, in these podcasts, we had Jack Cust on, and I was talking about uh, things that we saw him do on a high school <laughs> baseball field. Do you remember the workouts? The workout that I set up, I think it was a Sunday afternoon you and Murray came to. I do, and it, the, the right field fence was like about 250 feet. Yeah, but there was the trees. And the ball, and the balls are like pearls. <laughs> it, was, it was like designed to impress, Will. You did a good job. It was, uh, but uh, Stan Selesky did mark off a ball he hit in BP at over 500 feet one day. <laughs> Yeah. But do you remember the pitcher we ended up signing that was a college senior after the draft? He he pitched in two minor league all-star games in uh, low A ball and high A ball, really knew how to pitch, Nicky Rizzo. And I think Cust hit about three home runs and a double off of him in that simulated game. I remember and, there being the college pitcher there that, the, that, that, that you had brought in as well, but I didn't remember that part of the story. So, so Jack at the end of the workout, he goes, man, oh man, if I could hit like guys like against guys like this, I'd hit about 800 <laughs> because because at least he throw, you know, because during a high school season, he maybe saw 15 strikes the whole year. He said he was just so excited that somebody was actually pitching to him. Yeah. That's funny. That's funny. Well, Jack, we've had you on for almost well, close to an hour, about 15 minutes. Mark, well, do you have any any final questions for, for Jack? I, I don't really go ahead, Willie. If you have a question, go ahead. But I've got no. A, no go ahead, Mark. No, I, I I've got a quote which I think really kind of paints the picture. If you haven't noticed, you're talking. Jax is a very humble person, and you know, honestly, those are the kind of guests we like to have on because they have an appreciation for who they are. They have an appreciation for other people. And I have a friend of mine who's a, a renowned golf teacher. His name is Carl Warren. And he has a quote, which I think is really appropriate. It says, humility is the ability to be thankful for your gifts and talents, and especially being aware you're not on an island and your success came from the help of other people and other things. That's the kind of people we like to surround ourselves with. And I always feel like when I'm around Jax, that that's the kind of person I'm, I'm with. Very well said. Yeah. Uh, I did have one I wanted to add. Jax, did uh, Joe McDonald hire you at Detroit? Uh, no, I had already been there when, when, okay. when Joe came. Joe uh, uh, promoted me from the East Coast Crosschecker to the uh, scouting okay. director. Yeah. Okay. Joe's, yeah. Joe's, Joe's been instrumental in my career very much so. And, and, and I want to say, Mark, thank you for those kind words. And, and that's something that that concept of paying forward and recognizing that that you're lucky to have had the life career, whatever it is, whether it's in scouting or whatever. It's, it's not exclusive to scouting, but I think that's what we as a society owe to the world is to, uh, you know, remember how we got there. And also be able to, you know, pay it forward to somebody else. Very well said, Jack. You know, the the one thing I I think I didn't let anybody know, but I think our listeners would know that, you know, they've been listening to somebody that was a member of the USA Select Committee for 
multiple Olympics and gold cup. So you were instrumental in helping put those teams together that were championship teams um, on the world stage. And I, I think that, that I think they'd be interested to know that. Okay. I think it's appropriate. I was going to throw this one at the end, Jax. You, you answered one of my final questions, which was any message to our audience out there. And I think that was beautifully said about paying it forward. What were your thoughts on the World Baseball Classic this past year? Wow. I, mean, I guess that would answer it. Wow. Um, it was, it was uh, so Will and I talked a little bit about this the other day, that it's such an electric environment. And I, I would say the, the, the games, I watched probably more innings of those last um, maybe five, six days than I had all of last year, Major League regular season. It, it was spellbound. I mean, it, it mattered so much to these players. I mean, it was so important to them. And they were so happy for their teammates. I mean, it's something you just don't see on a regular basis in, in the regular season. And, and I understand the regular season's a grind. It's it's to get to the next step in the playoffs. And it, it's, it's, you know, it's an every day for, for months on end. So it's a different environment, but boy, that like that Puerto Rican Dominican game, oh my God, was that was that was such entertainment and such as you know I, I just I watched that entire every pitch, and and I was on the edge of my I thought it was fabulous, and and I'm I'm grateful the USA had a had a good showing and and uh, yeah it was. It, the, that that whole concept has now kind of taken a, another step forward, and I think people will continue to really look forward to both playing it as players, and but and also watching it. And amazing too, they didn't have any of the rule changes in there, and the, the games seemed to move just fine, and the fans seemed to enjoy it, and uh, the players seemed to have no problem with with uh, playing baseball the right way, moving the ball around, hitting the other way. Throwing strikes. Um, it's certainly better than watching an all-star game. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Will, you, you got something you want yeah, to Yeah, I, I, I was talking to Kevin Kiernan about this yesterday, and um, we always hear the old saying, uh, the name on the front means more than the name on the back. In the World Baseball Classic, they live it day after day after day. They become unbelievable teammates that we don't see during the season. There's more selfish me stuff that happens during the season, but we do see it in the playoffs and in the World Series usually. You just wish that that was, you know, like the old saying, you know, boy, if every day could be Christmas when everybody's nice to each other, the world would be a better place. If we played baseball, every day that the name on the front meant more than the name in the back. Imagine how good the game would be. Could we do the classic every year? You think they can convince major league baseball? No, no, no. Why is that? Uh, well, we, we already, we already have so many injuries. I just don't think the play, unless they cut the season back, you know, uh, I think, I, I don't know, but it would be fun to watch. It certainly is better baseball. Yeah. Jack, you were, you were going to comment on that. What were you going to say? Uh, I, I was not. <laughs> oh, okay. I, saw your, I saw your mic go up and down. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. No, that might, might have been a cough. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. 
Well, well, guys, a great another great show, uh, Wiley and Will. A day at the Yard, Common Sense Pitching with Wiley and Will. The Jax Robertson on today with our episode 145. Jax, thanks thanks so much for, for coming on. You were wonderful. We'd love to have you back if you would do that with us at some point in time. Sure. I had a great time talking to you guys. And Mark and Will, phenomenal job again. Uh, you give our audience a, a great listen every week. Got a lot of uh, loyal fans, and we want to talk to those fans. Remember, all 14,300 subscribers continue to download, listen, like, subscribe. We're on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher. Hit us up on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Again, I'll respond to questions on Facebook directly, and then I'll hit everybody privately so nobody goes unattended to. But this is A Day at the Yard, Common Sense Pitching with Wiley Will, Wiley and Will. Until next week. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, Thanks, great job. Thank you. Thank you.